right, all right, all right. <laughs> Day 174. Welcome back to the Windows and Mirrors podcast. My name is Keith. And remember, this is a podcast where we're trying to show you that the Bible is more like a window than it is a mirror. We come to it to see through it and to see God, not to it to primarily look at it and see ourselves. All right, so uh, we're picking right back up in the book of Isaiah. We're in Isaiah chapter five. Remember last time, you know, we kind of laid out the main themes, how Isaiah is like this fifth gospel, how Isaiah... Uh, um, indicts Israel with the covenant lawsuit where he basically comes with uh, these terms and says, yo, y'all have been guilty of violating this covenant. And here in chapter five, he picks up uh, still with the indictment of Israel, but he's going to use this parable, this song of the vineyard. And so um, he gives this uh, poem um, and it basically compares Israel to a vineyard that has been planted by God, but one that is unfruitful. Right. And so Jesus uh, in the New Testament will pick up this imagery um, and pick on and talk about these themes in places like Matthew 21 and Luke 20 in his very own parables in ministry. So you even see like the parallel there between Isaiah and between Jesus. And so now there's this, uh, in this text in Isaiah five, I believe one through seven, he has this play on uh, this metaphor of fruit on this metaphor of grapes. Right. One of Israel's and Judah's main crops were literal grapes. But listen to what he says in verse two. He says he built the tower in the middle of it and even dug out a wine press there talking about how God uh, planted uh, Israel. He expected it to yield good grapes, <laughs> but it yielded worthless grapes. So he, in other words, he's saying like like y'all had literal like physical fruit, but no like spiritual fruit. And so God is indicting them because it's like, no, no, like it looked good from the outside, but it's really actually corrupt. Y'all haven't. Uh, produce the fruit the Lord had been looking for, the spiritual fruit he had been looking for. And look what the spiritual fruit is. I love it, man. Verse seven, for the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel. So he's clear. And the men of Judah, so both Israel and Judah, the plant he delighted in. Listen, he expected justice. <laughs> he expected justice, but saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but heard cries of despair. And I love it because at the end of the day, the fruit that the Lord is getting at here, many of us, when we tend to think of the fruit that God requires of us, we think of the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all that kind of good stuff, which is true and which is right. Or like Jesus will say in the Gospels, uh, fruit worthy of repentance, right? True repentance. But also here, this text is telling us, and this is why it's good to read your whole Bible. Justice and righteousness is expected fruit from the people of God, right? Like it is expected fruit. And remember what Christ says in the Gospels. He says, yo, a good tree can't produce uh, bad fruit, but neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. Our fruit is what distinguishes us as whether we are part of God's garden or not <laughs> from there. And so from there, he goes and he lays out these six woe oracles and I won't read them in the uh, interest of time. But he basically provides these specific and precise uh, justifications for why this indictment is coming against the people of Judah. And so he says this in verse eight, I'll read one. He says, um, woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room and you alone are left in the land. What is he saying? Well, if you remember, um, Leviticus 25, right? Leviticus 25, a while ago, <laughs> uh, spoke about the Sabbath year, right? So every seven year, every seven years was a Sabbath year. And every seven, seven years was the year of Jubilee. And so God had specific pr provisions in these years about the cancellation of debts, about the rightful uh, returning of land and property and harvest to those who it belonged to. So in other words, what the text is saying here is that God commanded folks. He said, yo, fam, if you got money 
and you buy land from another Israelite, guess what? At the year of Jubilee, every seven, seven years, you have to give it back so that folks can be provided for. The poor of the land can be provided for. And however, in Isaiah's time, they completely disregarded what the Lord said. So they were not returning the lands and thus buying up all the space in the land of Israel in this specific area and thus kicking people out that previously lived there, kicking them out. And and this was unjust. Right. And the poor once again were left with scraps instead of being secure in the society, this just society that God was trying to create. They was left with scraps, fam. And I love it because, man, yo, like this is so so like practical, right? Like we don't live in a theocracy, um, like the land of Israel, like like the Old Testament saints, but we we can take the, the the timeless moral principle and theological truth that the poor is supposed to be provided for, and we have to work out what that looks like in our own day. It is close to God's heart. This is a concrete example of what is close to God's heart, and it should be close to our hearts as well, right? God is not just saying this to say this. He ain't just trying to meet a word count, my G. Like, he is saying, no, 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 this stuff is close to my heart, fam, and it should be close to yours as well. And one of the most powerful verses in chapter 5, I love it, verse 20, is this. He says, yo, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, (laughs) who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. That's so poetic. The prophets are so poetic. Listen, what he's saying is this, as one theologian named Thomas Brooks used to say, Judah was guilty of painting sin with virtues colors, right? They were guilty of painting sin with virtues colors, right? This There was this inability to uh, rightly distinguish and practice uh a distinction between what Yahweh called good and what Yahweh called evil, right? If we remember thinking, thinking about the timeline of redemptive history, thinking about the biblical storyline, this was the same sin of Adam and Eve, right? Things that God said was wrong, they were saying was right. And things that God said was right, they weren't they, they they were more so leaning towards it being wrong, right? Like they were there was this substitution when there should have been this proper distinction. And sin, church, I'm saying church, sin, folks, will lead us to justify and rationalize anything, anything we want to be good, even if it's evil, uh, we will make it good, moral, and right. And this is what the Lord is like, fam, I am not please. And man, this is just a warning, fam. This is like a warning, a warning, a warning, right? That's the prophet's like main ministry. That's their main tone. Like that's the main key. They always, they always singing in like, no, no, we're warning you about what you've done and giving you an opportunity to turn from it. And so he says, yo, y'all are going into exile. It's a wrap. He's going to use the destination to do this. 526 chapter six comes. And remember chapter six is that chapter, right? Like chapter six, you should read it, meditate on it, write it on the tablet (laughs) of your heart, right? And so it's one of the high points in the book. Many have argued that the entire book needs to be read through the lens of this vision, right? All of the major themes that Isaiah will preach about have their origin here. Now, what's interesting about the Bible is that um, the, the prophets encounter with God informs what they say about God, right? And so you see this in other visions, like Paul, for example, is a perfect example. Acts chapter nine, when he meets the Lord on the road to Damascus and the Lord speaks to him 
and tells him what he's going to do, you know, uh, uh, speak to take his gospel to the Gentiles, uh, Israelites and kings, all that kind of stuff. Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? He is, he's just all this language that Paul is going to like further use in his letters. So in other words, if you want to understand Paul's theology, look at Acts chapter nine. If you want to understand Isaiah's theology and what he always was getting at in his sermons is always what he always came back to look at Isaiah chapter six. All right. So Isaiah sees his vision. It's of this glorious, high and lifted up and exalted almighty king of the universe. And he is struck by his holiness. So 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 the theme, the theme of this chapter is the Lord's kingship. God is this great king that has established himself over his people. Right. And wants to reign through his people. So so he's this great king. But he used um, this 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 way of speaking about God. He says he's holy, holy, holy. Right. So so God is this great king. But his holiness and his kingship are intertwined. So God is the king of the universe. And his, he's, he's this holy king and his glory is meant to fill the whole earth. So much here we could talk about forever. Anyway, Isaiah is in the temple. So in those days, what, what happens? In those days, prophets were meant to be patterned after Moses, right? So in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord is like, no, no, no I'm going to raise up prophets like Moses after you. So in other words, every prophet that comes in Israel was meant, there was a true prophet that was meant to be patterned after Moses, even the end time last day prophet, Lord Jesus, right? He's this new Moses. So in those days, to receive the prophetic call, hear this, they had to be caught up into the glory presence of the Lord, recreated and appointed for the prophetic task to proclaim the Lord's covenant word to his covenant people. Right. If you remember Moses, Exodus 34, he goes up into the heavenly or even Exodus uh, three, Exodus three, Exodus 34, when he renews it. But um, he's caught up into the presence of the Lord. He's on Mount Sinai. He's caught up into the glory presence of the Lord. And and he's recreated his his face starts shining, all that good stuff. And he goes and proclaims the covenant from there. And so the same thing happens with Isaiah. The same thing happens with Ezekiel. The same thing happens with um, Jeremiah as well. Um, we don't see it with the minor prophets, um, but we can assume that this took place uh, based on what we see with the pattern uh, uh, from, from Moses to the major prophets. Anyway, so so this happens and the Lord comes, recreates him. He comes and touches his lip with this burning coal. So the seraphim actually, seraph is, is so many, so many word plays. Seraph, seraphim it comes from a, a word that means burning. And so he touches them with the burning coal and uh, <clears throat> he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. He, he purifies his lips. Uh, in other words, so the Lord is holy. He has his sin. He's atoned for in the presence of God. Isaiah recognizes his sinfulness in the midst of God's holiness. I wish I had time to talk about uh, the more we're aware and understand God's holiness. We'll understand our sinfulness and our need for atonement, our need for redemption. And so um, basically, this is a prophetic rerun, right? Like the same thing happens similar to Moses. And so um, he, he atones for his lips because that's the mouthpiece he's going to use to proclaim God's covenant and for his commission. But also it symbolizes what needs to take place for Judah. Remember, we've said Judah is sinful, Judah is sinful, Judah is sinful. And they need to be purified. They need to be atoned for. Their sin needs to be like cleansed from them. And so God uh, qualifies Isaiah here for this task. And it's so good because um, so many things uh, are, are so many things are happening at one time. But the Lord is going to use Isaiah to carry this joint out. And he says, look what he says, the message. He's like, yo, go say to these people, keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull, deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. The way he, uh, the word he uses for minds there can also be translated heart. And so, in other words, when a prophet is speaking in such a way and you are unable to comprehend its meaning and its meaning uh, falls on deaf ears, in a sense, um, it, it, it's, it's spoken of spiritually as being uh, deaf and blind, right? But it means that judgment is upon you. And Jesus is going to quote this in the Gospels, uh, Matthew chapter or Mark chapter four, a ton. 
And he's going to say like, yo, like, no, no. At the end of the day, when God's word goes forth, hearts are either hardened or softened. Right. And so what he's doing is he's echoing like this Exodus theme. Remember um, Pharaoh, right? When the Lord was sending his word through Moses, the, the pattern, the paradigm prophet, like Pharaoh's heart was hard. Right. Pharaoh's heart was hard. And it's the same thing today. Like God's word reveals the postures of our hearts. Right. So so when God's word is preached forth, even in the gospel, like when we're preaching the gospel, if our hearts are hardened, it says something about us. Right. But if they're softened, it also says something about us as well. And so the Lord is like, no, 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 like I want you to preach this word and it's going to actually harden the heart of the people and they will not see. They'll be blind. Right. And he comes later and he's uh, clear about his mission and what he's supposed to say. But then he goes even more formally and introduces the purpose of the book in many ways. He says, uh, basically, Isaiah is, is God's agent for warning Israel of the coming desolation and purifying of the land. We keep talking about that. Judgment is coming. He says at the end, a tenth will remain, though. Remember, like prophets always bring judgment, but they always bring hope in his presence with that bad boy. And so he's like, no, no, a tenth is going to remain in the land. The holy seed, the stump will remain. The remnant. Listen, the remnant is called the holy seed. The holy seed is so much. It's so good. Because I say it's saying, you know, no, Genesis 3.15. Remember, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent, right? Genesis 3.15, the, the holy seed is still going to be left. In other words, God has not abandoned his plan. God has not abandoned his plan. God is going to still use the holy seed even in the midst of this sinful, wicked, and unjust people, right? But he said, no, no, it has to go through suffering and judgment to get there, not apart from it. My plan has to go through suffering and judgment, not apart from suffering and judgment. Uh, will it come? about chapter seven comes all right chapter seven comes and the book takes on some narrative elements so it sets us years after Uzziah remember in a year King Uzziah died so this is uh chapter six and then um it sets us years later with his son Ahaz so remember uh Isaiah had this long ministry through these four kings in Judah and so Ahaz is king and so what take place in chapter seven is this war is going on right this is all historical context this war is going on this 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 zero Ephraimite war, right? It's this war between Syria or the war between Assyria, which is um, the, the leading power of the day. Assyria is about to battle against Ephraim. That's the northern kingdom, Israel and Syria. So Syria is joining with Israel and they're fighting Assyria. Right. And so basically Israel and Syria come to Judah and say, hey, we're about to fight against Assyria. We want your help. We want y'all to form this political alliance. And fight with us. Now, Judah doesn't want to do that. Ahaz doesn't want to do that, right? And so, because of that, all right, they're like, no, we got beef. Y'all don't want to come rock. Y'all don't want to come throw hands with us. We have beef, right? And so, Ahaz is scared. This is the king of Judah. Now, Isaiah is prophesying to him, but he's scared. He's like, yo, I'm so scared that I'm going to pay Assyria a little something so that they can help uh, help me not fight against them <laughs> with my brother Israel. And so what Isaiah does, he comes to Ahaz and he's like, yo, don't put your trust in man, but put your trust in God. Listen, I wish I had time to talk about fear creeps in most heavily when we trust in humans more than the one that created them. Right. Like we cannot put our trust in human beings more than we can in the one who created them. And so they're so hot with uh, Ahaz, the northern kingdom in Syria, that they want to take my man from the throne. God is like, yo, it's not happening. Uh, I have the power to veto any human intention or decision. 
And in fact, Syria, he says, the Lord says, is going to destroy them. Now, he gives them this prophecy, this Isaiah 714, and we learn about Christ here for sure, but he gives them this Emmanuel prophecy. He says, yo, the virgin will conceive and his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. In other words, the sign that God was with them, that God was going to destroy or that God was going to use Assyria against uh, Israel and Syria was the actual virgin conceiving right like was the was the birth of this child right the sign that god was with them was the son that was born to them right and yeah when god's word comes true uh basically damascus which is uh the the, the a city in uh syria and um um samaria were destroyed by Assyria, right were destroyed by this country and at the end of the day it's the same promise for us right the same promises for us that at the end of the day, like the sign that God is with us was the son that was born for us. And that son, Matthew chapter one, is going to pick up Isaiah seven fourteen and say, no, 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 that son is Jesus. That son is Jesus. So in the midst, in other words, he was and is God with us. And, and the fact still remains today. And so this is a reason for hope, even in the midst of great fear. Right. There are many things that come in our lives. It may not be <laughs> this true political war that's going on. But it is it is a a literal like truth that God is with us, even in the midst of our greatest fears. And so the Lord wants to encourage his people here with that, but also us. So we keep going. Isaiah 8, last chapter here. So much. I know. But man, it's so dope because Isaiah is this writing prophet. Right. And he's going to be clear that he's a writing prophet. Old Testament, you had writing prophets and then you had like just uh, spoken or proclaiming prophets. So Elijah and Elisha, basically, they don't they didn't leave anything written behind. But Isaiah did. Right. So Isaiah is this writing prophet and the text mentions witnesses that are there while he's writing his prophecies because he's going to die. He's prophesying about the future. He dies and the witnesses there can confirm whether he's a true prophet or not if the things come true. Right. And so he's writing and he says up until verse nine, he's speaking about the Assyrian invasion of Israel and how that river of Assyria will actually flow into Judah. Right. So Judah is going to experience some problems with Israel. Why? Because Ahaz was tripping. He was trying to pay off Assyria instead of going to God about the political problems he was actually having, right? But the good news for Judah, though, once again, is that God is with them. Emmanuel, God is with them. They don't have to be afraid. Assyria will come against them, but Assyria won't destroy them, right? In fact, Judah is going to stay around for another 150 years, right? So the book of Isaiah is actually going to cover what is going to happen for over 150 years, fam. And the crazy thing is, is that... um. Isaiah writes it and prophesies it years before it even happens. And so what happens here is Assyria is going to come, but the Lord is like, no, 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 there will be some that won't make it, right? There will be some that won't make it, but I'm going to leave a remnant. remnant. Um, and others, there will be, there were some who won't make it. There were some who will stumble over the stumbling stone, but others will make the, will make the Lord their sanctuary. And the lesson for us is this, at the end of the day, all of that to say, God's people shouldn't run to another king or another Lord when we brush up against the overwhelming problems of life, right? We shouldn't run to another king. There's no other king that can do for us what the king of the universe can do for us. He and he alone can meet our deepest needs, deliver us from our greatest fears, and save us from our greatest enemies. God, by way of Isaiah, tells them and tells us that he has given us sufficient revelation of himself in his word to be what we need in the midst of our problems and this is something that can't be found anywhere else in 
the world. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your grace today. 